In the Fuzzy Memories podcast, we celebrate the good, the rad, and the fugly of the 80s and 90s. We're three latchkey kids who made it out alive. And in each episode, we break down all the culture that popped one year at a time. Whether it's the birth of legends. I'm Lyme disease free today and I have Whitney Houston and MTV to thank. (laughs) Or audacious moves. Imagine also the the poor Golden Gate Bridge. You turn 75 and people have a party on you. I don't want that. Or even confusing PSAs. In the stop, drop, and roll. I mean, we would, I assume as an adult, I would catch on fire weekly. All the time! (laughs) We've got a take that will make you laugh. We've also got thoughts on all sorts of random phenomena and the most unmitigated of golf. Why sharks can't be trusted, people can't be trusted, and rivers can't be trusted. (laughs) It's collusion. It's of the highest degree! Uh Uh-huh. You were counseling me to start my remarks with, first of all, bitch. <laughs> that one, everyone in that room would have snapped to attention. It's going to be basically coffee lids, shark revenge, and then maybe like Matt gets. <laughs> we need to do something about him. Join us every other Wednesday to celebrate the hits, the misses, and the misfits of the weirdest decades. If I could tell my 14-year-old self from 1990 that I would be eating in a cheesecake factory in, in Beverly, Beverly Hills, I'd be like, we did it. We, we did it, Joe. We did it. <laughs> Listen and subscribe to Fuzzy Memories on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite podcast platform. Hello, and welcome to Broads and Books. I'm Erin. And I'm Amy. And this is a special Broads and Books bonus episode. Today on the Broads Talk Books with, we've got M. Allen Cunningham. I recommended his book Q&A in episode 84 about liars and con men and hucksters. Hucksters. Remember hucksters? I love when you say hucksters. (laughs) It's my favorite. Mark is an author, a teacher, and a publisher at Atelier 26 Books. I've had the great pleasure of knowing him for a while. He's also the publisher and editor for my upcoming book, Full Disclosure. Full Disclosure. disclosure. That's not why we wanted to talk to him, though. Not singularly. (laughs) No, because he's written a lot of books. He has. And and I'm a fan of a lot of them. They're amazing. Yeah. Get this. He also runs a creativity podcast called In the Atelier. Which is kind of your nightmare, right? Yeah. I mean, you've gone on record that you're worried about these cool authors who talk about books really eloquently, like starting their own podcast and stealing all of our thunder. Yes. Listen, I believe (laughs) there's room for everyone. I just want us all to thrive. But I am very easily spooked. And I do feel as though it's a little bit of a threat. We did not challenge him to a death match or anything, no, so no, don't worry about no, that. No, no, we we didn't mm-hmm. even really talk about it because you just feel don't want to. Yeah. It's born out of love. It's like I think this is amazing. Other exactly. people are going to think this is amazing. Yeah, and, and then we, you start feeling inadequate about us. Yes, and our own output. Yeah, you shouldn't, Aaron. Right, I know you shouldn't. It should be more centered in my own confidence. <laughs> and listen, Mark. You know the way he talks about oh, books. Yeah, it's amazing. And the way that he talks about cool authors that either we hadn't really heard of or hadn't really known much about, 
Uh, it's a real treat. It is. Yeah. He's wonderful. So we've put all the books that Mark mentions in the show notes so you can add them all to your TBR pile. And now here's our interview with M. Allen Cunningham. All right, Mark. So thinking about you as a young person, um, what do you have a particular favorite book as a kid or a teen or a few favorite books? I gave this some thought, um, knowing this might be one of your questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to give it some advanced thought because whenever um, I'm asked that, um, I can never come up with books. There's something about um, my early, early experience of books that they kind of went in my brain and then out. And I sort of I might retain the title, but I remember nothing about the reading experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was thinking about um, some of those books that stay with me for whatever reason, if, even if I don't remember like the drama and the involvement um, of the reading experience. And the ones that came to mind were the Narnia books, you know, the Lion, Witch in the, Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe was hugely important in that way, I guess. I mean, I, I could remember what happened in that book. So that says... <laughs> That does a lot about that experience. Uh Um, There was also a book called The Brothers Lionheart, which whenever I think of early books, that one rises to the top for me. And again, I can't remember very many details about it. It's by Astrid Lindgren, the the author of Pippi Longstocking. Um, The Brothers Lionheart. I just remember being um, extremely intensely involved in that book. And I remember a feeling of like peril and dread and darkness through the whole thing. And I'd never experienced the power, that kind of power from a book before. Um, again, I can't tell you what happened, except that that was sort of the tone of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a book called The Lion's Paw, which a lot of kids love, uh, Rob White. It's sort of a classic. Um, all I remember about that is there were some kids in an orphanage and um, they would look at the gate of the orphanage from the inside and it would say um, Eganofro, like orphanage in reverse. Uh, and for some reason that really sticks with me. Um, but that book was really involving, although I can't tell you what happens in it. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and then the books that I actually started to remember and have a sort of a life relationship with, I think the first one was probably Hatchet, uh, Gary Paulson's book, Hatchet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That book um, in a way was sort of a life changer. Um, because it was so life and limb, the whole scenario of this boy in a plane crash and the pilot dies, he's the only survivor, he has to survive in the wilderness and all he has is the hatchet um, and all the um, the peril that he encounters. It was just an extremely vivid reading experience and I carried it with me after like consciously thinking about it and feeling affected by it for a long time. So. That was the first, I think, like the turning point, Hatchet. And then I read some Stephen King, you know, Misery was one I remember being really involved in uh, and really loving and being terrified by. And then a little later on, like, I was thinking about sort of the trajectory. Age 12, I, um, that was the year, 1990, I was 12 years old. That was the year the, um, the new movie version of Hamlet came out with Mel Gibson. Yeah. Uh, the Franco Zeffirelli version. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about Shakespeare, anything about Hamlet, but the poster had a guy holding a sword on it. (laughs) And so I went, I thought this is going to be great. Yeah. (laughs) And strangely, 
I had like a conversion experience in watching that film, sitting in that theater at 12 years old, um, coming to understand that the language was like nothing I'd ever encountered before, encountered before, but that if I sat with it, it started to make sense. It was this sort of con conversion experience is the only way I can describe it. Wow. Um, where I, I had this very conscious awareness of coming to a place of understanding the language while I was watching it, even though it didn't all make sense, of course. Um, and that was just really powerful, like a whole different level of language, a whole different way of using language that I'd never even considered before. Um, so that led to me like reading some of Hamlet's monologues and soliloquies uh, on my own and memorizing some of them and committing the words to memory and really sort of inhabiting the words. Um, that was a pretty important experience. And then age 14 was the big year where my mother gave me two books and those were uh, Thoreau's Walden and um, Letters to a Young Poet, the yeah. real good book. And uh, those have stayed with me. Um, they were really probably the beginning of my life as a writer, I would say, oh. um, where I, I understood, particularly with Walden, I, I, I was exposed to something about how a writer could uh, operate on so many different levels. Um, being 14, that book appealed to me initially because he was just so rebellious and like um, turning his back on all the conventions, a total nonconformist, uh, preaching about how everybody's getting it wrong, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. that appealed to me. But the more I lived with the book and the more I lived with his language and his evocations of nature and all of that, the more I experienced it on every level that it operates on, you know, over the years. So that book's been hugely important for me, along with Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet, which I know a lot of readers have had this experience, but you read that book and you feel like it's written to you, right? If, especially if you're a young writer. Uh, and I definitely had that feeling. And I've gone on to write about both of those writers. I wrote a novel about Rilke uh, later on, and um, I've published a book of Thoreau's writings too, his, his funny writings. So That was what I was thinking when you said you were 14 when you first read those books, because then that's become a lifetime love. You're still grappling with those on your podcast, in your yeah. writing. What do you think it is that has stuck with you so long? Was it that first initial experience at 14 and feeling like it was written to you? Uh, the, Rilke, the Rilke stuff, um, for sure. I mean, it was written to me. That's how, it, that's how it came across for me. And then I learned more about his, his work and his life. And um, he became in many ways sort of an exemplar of uh, a total wholehearted commitment to his art. Um, and there, there are problematic aspects to that, which I explore in the book I wrote about him. But uh, initially, he was a really powerful, influential figure for me, Rilke, in that way. Um, just sort of emblematic of like, here's a person who devoted himself entirely to this totally unlikely, uh, unpractical <laughs> thing. And uh, the work is lasting, you know. And, and Walden, it was just the thing of how that book continues to open up to you the longer you live with it. It's sort of an allegory on one level. It's a political tract on one level. It's a manifesto. It's also a, it's a personal memoir on some levels. It's sort of a hybrid book. It's sort of the first hybrid book um, where he's fictionalizing a lot of his experience. He lived at the pond for two years, but he condenses it into a single year in the book to give a special shape to the narrative. So he's a writer who's just really instructive the longer you live with him. Thorough. 
And now at this point, I've lived with him longer than I haven't, like <laughs> in my life. Wow. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you encountered a lot of text early on. And one of the things that we've talked about on the podcast or that we sometimes hear from listeners is maybe they struggled early on with the book that was presented to them. And it maybe presented a little bit of a stumbling block for them. Is there a classic or a book you remember struggling with or not connecting with as much? Yes. And the way I, I am thinking about this is the books that I was assigned to read that I <laughs> flat out did not read you know, <laughs> in high school generally. Mm -hmm. um, and the two that come to mind immediately are Lord of the Flies. Um, for whatever reason, it, that book just didn't work for me at that time in my life and Animal Farm. Those are two books that I sort of faked my way through, didn't read at all. Um, and I'm, I think the reason that is, is both of them are like, they're kind of spoon fed to students or they were in my high school days, spoon fed to students as allegory. And it's all about decoding these precise meanings like the conch means this in <laughs> Lord of the Flies. Um, obviously they are allegorical in some way, but I don't know that that's the most engaging way to bring young readers into a rich experience of literature. That idea that there's these strict correspondences of symbology, you know. So those that's two, I point. just I've didn't never really read. put that definition on it before, and that's a really good point. Like I remember that so early on, and especially high school, of like almost your creativity is cut off because it's like, no, this is what this means. And this yeah. is what this means. And now read this set of pages and you should get this out of it. And then we'll be done. Yeah. And, yeah, it, and it kind of awful. It sort of insinuates that there's that literature is like a question that has a specific answer. Right. Yes, yeah. 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 When really, I mean, literature, as we all know, as readers is, is a question in itself. And that's what makes it so great. You know, such an enriching experience. So that is a good point. It feels more like math or science than if we're reading that way, you know, which, you know, I, I may be overgeneralizing, but I was not a fan of math and science. So maybe that was why some of the books <laughs> didn't hit very well. But yeah. Uh, you know, you mentioned obviously Rilke and uh, uh, Thoreau. Were there, were those the books? you think that really kind of pushed you to writing or were there other books that you think you read and you're like this, this is what I want to do. Those were, yeah, those were the main big books at first um, that gave me the first inklings, even before I articulated it to myself mm -hmm. that, that um, this is something one can do and maybe I could try to do. Um, and then when I was 19, I did a semester abroad in London. It was the first time I'd been out of the country and I was already a pretty avid reader of great uh, English writers, 19th century, uh, mostly the romantic poets mainly. Um, and while in England, I traveled around to all these different sites, the homes of great poets. I went to Keats's house in London and Wordsworth's house in the Lake District and everywhere I went was just kind of haunted by these figures. And I think that was a major turning point to just a sense again of real lives having been lived in dedication to this thing that people had done it before it was possible. So yeah, the romantic poets were in there too <laughs> as an important um, sort of threshold to the idea that maybe I could try this, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, thinking a little bit now about your reading life now, 
and this is somewhat of a self-serving question for us, but <laughs> how many books would you say are on your to be read pile? <laughs> and are there a few you can share? Yes, I um I have some ready here. I ordered, uh, I've been reading poetry a lot lately. And that was something I, I, I liked reading poetry early on and then I got away from it for many years and now I find myself coming back to it. And just recently I ordered uh, Elizabeth Bishop's collected poems and the collected poems of Robert Hayden, who's, he's a poet new to me, but um, I'd seen a few of his pieces here and there in anthologies, but for the most part, he's new to me and his language is just incredible. It's just um, so intricate and beautifully shaped. So those are both on my pile I'm reading currently. I also have a book I got over the holidays by a, um, an Irish critic named Brian Dillon. And this is a book put out by the New York Review Books. I have it here. It's called Suppose a Sentence. Oh. And uh, it's a work of literary criticism, but it's the way it's structured is every chapter he heads with a particular sentence from another writer that he really admires and he wants to explore. Oh, cool. So this chapter oh is gosh. from Charlotte Bronte the, and the sentence is just the drug rot. And then he'll just kind of riff on that sentence and everything, all the associations he has with it, all that makes him think about in terms of literary craft. Wow. He's a beautiful writer and he's really unconventional in the way he practices his criticism. Um, so that's, I've been reading this like, kind of like a devotional, <laughs> you know, like that's one chapter for a week, wow. uh, one chapter I'll meditate on two, for two weeks or something like that, you know. <laughs> um, this book I'm looking forward to starting soon. It's The Fortunes by Peter Ho Davies. And the structure of it looks really interesting. It deals with um, Chinese Americans in the 19th century, but also up through, I think, the mid 20th century. And it's sort of a, a triptych or maybe a four-parter oh. where he follows various characters at different times in history. And the writing is, I heard him read at a conference and it's beautiful writing. Mm -hmm. And this book, I wanted to be sure to mention, The Call. Do we know this? Uh -uh. From Yannick Murphy. Um, this came out in like 2012, I think, but I've been living with it for the last few years because I've been teaching it. I say the um, amount of post-it notes right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our listeners can't hear that, but uh, that's a substantial <laughs> amount of colored post-it notes. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, they're color-coded too. <laughs> um, but this book is, the longer I live with it and the more I revisit it and the more I think about it with my students, the more deeply I appreciate it. Um, mm. I think it's destined to be a classic of a kind, but the form is what really makes it interesting right off the bat. It, it follows a, uh, a large animal veterinarian in rural Vermont. Mm -hmm. And the form is um, every entry in the book is in the form of his call notes as a veterinarian. So it'll say, oh, cool. you know, the, it, the book starts call a cow with her dead calf half born Ooh. Action, put on boots and pulled dead calf out while standing in a field full of mud. Result, and then he'll describe that. And then he'll say, thoughts on drive home and oh so on. Gosh. And that oh, form wow. repeats throughout the book. And, and she kind of, she varies it at points. But it's incredible how much 
ground she covers, um, just in terms of theme, big ideas, character development. This book is out of this world. Erin, <laughs> you're a sucker for structure. I, I am. You yeah. give me a weird structure or different, I shouldn't say weird, and I am in. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Mark, you mentioned that you've been reading poetry and even some literary criticism. What do you think it is about right now that poetry is calling to you? Mm. That's exactly what it is. It's the time, I think. Yeah. Um, you can you can marinate, you know, in a poem. And that's it's just good for the mind. It's good for the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can marinate in the themes. You can marinate in the language. It's inspiring, too, just in terms of I keep little pocket notebooks. And I just jot down ideas as they come to me. And they become these, you know, miscellanies of random ideas, including, like, to-do lists and daily stuff. Um, but reading poetry, I find myself jotting down stanzas or just, you know, a single line or phrase, and then you carry it with you, you know, through the day, through the weeks. And here and there, you might find yourself jotting down your own sort of, um, poetic line or of some kind, uh, whether it becomes a poem or, mm-hmm. or whatever, it's just, it puts you in a state, you know, it's, yeah. it's a good state to be in, especially now. Yeah. yeah. Among your reading... Uh, either recently or, you know, relatively recently. Is there a, a book that's really surprised you? Another book I've been teaching and living with for a few years that, well, it's it's a constant surprise. I mean, it gives and gives like <laughs> the great books do, you know. And it's a book called Here, H-E-R-E, okay. um, by Richard McGuire. It's a graphic novel, um, but it's extremely unconventional in that there's no narrative in the way we think of narrative there isn't even very much language it's mostly just imagery um but it's it's a book set in a single room in a single house um and just one corner of that room uh so the book like the pages of the book converge toward the corner visually so every page the corner of the room is the gutter of the book um and you follow little events in this room and in this space over what ends up being billions of years. Um, So you're introduced to the home, you see um, some sort of little episodes of human life in that home, which is a house built in 1907. Uh, And it flashes forward to it at points where you see that like in the 21st century, the home um, collapses because there's climate change and flooding and um, and you go way back in time to before there was a house there when it was just forest. And then before that, when it was just swamp. And before that, when it was just like this primordial, you know, sort of uh, oh. dinosaur space. <laughs> uh, it's an incredibly imaginative book. Always, always surprising to, to revisit. Yeah, that sounds terrific. How do you normally find your book recommendations? I, I have a just sort of an organic way of making my way from one book to the other. And it's usually um, it's usually one author will refer to another or something and I'll kind of follow that trail of breadcrumbs. So it's a mix of things, but more than sort of word of mouth recommendations, it's usually just sort of the books themselves lead me to other books in some way. That's a great way of doing it. Yeah. yeah. It's sort of haphazard, but in the, in the end also, it ends up having this kind of unity about it in sort yeah. of mysterious ways. A lot of serendipity comes into play. Like they're all That's like- got to be kind of cool because you could almost like trace your lineage like through, you know, I'm here, but this is because I was over here. 
you know, a year ago. Yeah. And somehow too, it unites these authors that you might not necessarily associate, at least in your own mind as a reader, Mm -hmm. it unites them in this sort of great project of literature than in a way that's inspiring, you know? Mm -hmm. Thinking about, you know, sort of things that are in conversation with each other. Uh, we recommended, you know, Q&A in a recent episode. Yes, and, thank you. <laughs> well, yeah, and I know that you talked about this a little um, at one of the events I attended, but are there any, do you think there were any particular books or authors that inspired not just the content of what you were talking about, but the particular structure, which is very unique, the way that you went about it? Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a... Uh, it's kind of a collage structure. It just sort of ended up being that where there are a lot of different forms. There's the Q and A form where you'll just have a page that says Q A Q A and the, the question and response. And then there's a bunch of like media snippets that are patched in on at various points. And there's more um, straight narratives that are from different perspectives of different characters. Um, yeah, so it jumps around a lot. The forms are all kind of varied, but I was inspired by some great works that are kind of collage-like in nature. And one of those is, um, I have it on my shelf up there somewhere. Uh, But David Shields' book, Reality Hunger, became really important to me uh, while while writing Q&A. That's a collage structure. He's mostly borrowing uh, snippets of text from other authors and recombining them in interesting ways. Mm -hmm. The writer David Markson, was pretty important. His books are really um, unconventional. There's one called Reader's Block and uh, oh. it's in a series of books. They were kind of the anti-novels. He has one called Reader's Block and one called This Is Not a Novel actually. <laughs> um, but they're just sort of these collages of seemingly unassociated little snippets of text or little tidbits about um, famous writers or artists biographical tidbits and they're all kind of jumbled together in a way that at first doesn't seem to have any through line but hangs together thematically somehow and then I've been really inspired by writers who do a lot of kind of hybrid moves in their work where they're sort of breaking the fourth wall as a fiction writer or um, kind of not caring how their work is categorized in the end, whether it's fiction or nonfiction or what. And I think Q&A kind of ended up being a hybrid work in that way. A couple of those writers are John Edgar Wideman, great contemporary writer. um, And this book, particularly American Histories, a a recent short story collection by him. Um, He's constantly breaking the rules in this, in the best way. His, his, his stories are dizzying in, um, in their unexpectedness. You never quite know where you are, what the genre is, who the speaker is, whether it's the author or someone he's invented. He's constantly playing with the reader's expectations. He and actually Clairvy Watkins, um, her book, Battleborn, has been with me since it came out. And um, she does some of that in that book as well. And we'd like to ask some other kind of maybe not entirely related to reading questions. (laughs) The first one is, uh, do you have a memorable fan interaction? That could be weird, could be funny, touching. Um, I I don't think of myself as one who has fans, so this is tricky, but I do do have some interesting event um, anecdotes. One of them that was kind of strange. 
one that was kind of strange, actually, this has happened to me maybe on more than one occasion. Um, my book, Partisans, came out in 2015, and I read here in Portland at Powell's Books. Um, and, you know, it was a small audience, mostly of my friends and their friends, which is fantastic. And, um, but there were a couple people I didn't know. And I had a little book drawing at the end um, as kind of an incentive to get people to come and sit down and maybe listen. And uh, I gave away a free copy of Partisans. Um, so everybody got a little ticket at the beginning and then I drew the number at the end. And nice. the, uh, the person who won was a young person who was uh, there with a friend. Uh, I think they were both teenagers. I was delighted to you know, give them the book. <laughs> they were the winners. Um, and then at some point it became clear, I think they even said that they had come um, to the event for extra credit, which is fine. You know, that's totally cool. <laughs> if that's their way of discovering my work, extra I'm all credit. for that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, the clincher was that a week or two later, I was at that same Powell's and Powell's sells used books. You can sell your books back to Powell's. <laughs> and I found that very copy uh, on the shelf for sale once again. And it was only a few weeks after the event. So. Oh, that little turd. He just turned around. <laughs> and, yeah. But you know, it's out there for someone else to discover. So. <laughs> <laughs> and that's happened multiple times, you said? Well, not the, uh, not the sell back necessarily. Oh, um, <laughs> but uh, extra credit. Uh, attendees, which is great. You know, I'm all for that. that. I'm a teacher myself. I have, I want my students to go and experience these things, but uh, <laughs> it can be a little awkward. See, someday one of those kids is going to be interviewed by a podcast like us. And they're going to be like, look, I had to go to this event for extra credit. And then I found this book and it stuck with me all these years. And here it is. Yeah. There you go. Yep. Yeah. That's what we go with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I did not sell it back. My friend told me to, but I didn't. <laughs> I kept that damn book. Yeah. yeah. I got to say, though, the most meaningful sort of interaction from a reader um, has come in the form. This, the, I've had a few emails, a few letters from people who read my second novel, Lost Son, which is the novel about Rilke. Mm -hmm. It's a biographical novel very closely based on his life. Um, and when that book came out in 2007, it had a hard time finding readers. Um, and it's remained a mystery to me ever since, like what kind of life it's having out there in the world. We never know as authors what kind of life our yeah. books are having, but that one particularly has been puzzling to me. Um, going into writing that book, I thought this is a book that Rilke readers are going to love because I'm a Rilke reader and I'm writing it from that place of love myself. I think the experience of the book not finding that many readers was an indication that those readers are out there, but uh, maybe Rilke lovers don't necessarily want to read a book about his life, right? <laughs> maybe yeah. they just want to read his work. And that makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. But the most meaningful emails I've received have been from a handful of people who are just that kind of reader that I was envisioning when I wrote the book, you know, where they say, as a longtime reader of Rilke, this book meant so much to me, you know. Oh for that very reason. So to hear from someone who responded to a book in exactly the way you envisioned or you hoped the book would have its effect in the world, mm -hmm. that's, there's nothing better than that. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't matter then like how many people might be reading it. It's, it's, it's just about those one at a time 
connections from writer to reader, book yeah. to reader. Mm-hmm. As readers, we know that even if something isn't well known, if we fall for it, we fall hard. And yeah, that will, absolutely. That will stay with mm-hmm. us for a long time. Yeah. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. And I'm always honored that someone would take the time to write, you know, that's the other yeah, thing. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. That's a good one. We've heard a lot of shitty behavior with like, <laughs> and stuff. That's fantastic. We have. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> you know, you have been an author for quite a while now. You've been a publisher for quite a while. Are there particular people, other writers that you really wanted to meet and then you got to meet and that was a cool experience? Yeah. The first time that happened to me was on my very first book tour for yeah. my, my first novel, The Green Age of Asher Witherow, which came out in 2004. That book got a really good reception from booksellers. So I got a lot of invitations and my publisher uh, helped me travel around the country, including to um, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Arkansas. I'd never been to the South. Wow. And um, wow. I did a reading at Square Books in Oxford, Mississippi, which is a great, like, literary landmark um, in the US. And um, one of the writers who had inspired me greatly in the writing of The Green Age of Asher Witherow walked in. (laughs) Uh, He showed up for the reading. Um, His name's William Gay. He died a few years ago, actually. But he he was a Tennessee native and uh, lived not too far away. And he had lived in Oxford, Mississippi for a while and had friends there. But he took the time to come to my reading and um, I got to shake his hand and he said, I really enjoyed your book. And (laughs) I can't say how much that meant to me. It was just an unreal experience. Um, His his work is beautiful. And uh, I had the chance to meet Jane Ann Phillips, one of my favorite writers um, at AWP, my first AWP in 2015. Uh, I had written a review of her book for uh, the Oregonian here of her book, Quiet Dell. And that's a, that's a great novel, really eerie, really powerful. And so I got to go up to her in the book signing line and point to the, the blurb from my review in the front of the book and say, <laughs> I wrote this. So I sort of wormed my way into her good graces. I think. <laughs> nice. very nice. But she was very kind. Um, and we talked a bit and it was just a delight to meet her. I've been so inspired by her work for years now. Um, she's one of our great living writers, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the following day at AWP, um, you know how it is where there's different meeting rooms all over these yeah. big conference centers. I happened to see her in line at a snack station and, uh, and I just uh, trying to play it cool said, oh, hi, Jane Ann. Uh, <laughs> because we'd met, you know. So we are friends now. Yeah. <laughs> whether you remember or not. Yeah. <laughs> And she was kind again, but but what she said was, um, do you have any idea where conference room 122C is? <laughs> and that was our interaction. So, But uh, I, I couldn't have been any less delighted all the same. Well, that partly answers my question of whether you played it cool with uh, <laughs> the, the, the people. Because Aaron and I, we know it's not going to work. <laughs> no, no, thank God I haven't had to meet very many in person. <laughs> good Lord. That's... It's not going to go well. (laughs) (laughs) How would you say your readings changed since you became an author, a publisher, or even in the last year? I think first, um, since first publishing a a book, and my first one came out in 2004, and then 
kind of entering into the trajectory that probably most writers go through if they're lucky enough to publish multiple books, which is their ups and downs, right? Mm -hmm. This isn't a guaranteed like upward trajectory by any means. Um, Having experienced that, I found myself uh, gravitating toward writers who clearly demonstrated like the ability to do the long haul as writers to constant to continue producing through the ups and downs of their own careers. Um, And also constantly challenging themselves to do new things, break rules, try new forms, that that kind of writer and also the lesser known writers, sort of the neglected, obscure writers. Um, so a handful of those are people like Cynthia Ozick is one of my great literary loves. Uh, her work is so inspiring, especially her essays, but she's a beautiful fiction writer too. The writer, uh, Patrick White, he's an Australian novelist. He won the Nobel Prize um, back in the seventies, but his works are almost all but forgotten. He's an incredible modernist writer, one of the greats, without a doubt. Um, His book, Voss, and his book, uh, The Vivisector, are both incredible tour de force works. So I find myself kind of seeking out those those writers on the fringes and just taking great inspiration and consolation from, from them, knowing that their careers weren't by any means, you know, like stratospheric. They were just constantly like making it work somehow. Um, and constantly improving their own work and expanding their own capabilities as writers. So, yeah, that's interesting because I could see how you know you're trying to maybe not deliberately, but go under you know the the big the level up here that everyone's talking about, and you're looking for those that you know maybe not everyone is talking about the really cool, interesting stuff that's going on. Yeah, and you do have to seek them out. Yeah, yeah. they're they're not going to be presented to you necessarily, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, there's another writer named Bruce Olds. He's a contemporary. Um, he's he deserves far more attention than he receives. And talk about an extremely adventurous, vital writer. He wrote a book about um, John Brown called Raising Holy Hell. Uh, back in the 90s, I think. And that book is just tremendous. It's it's kind of another collage work and sort of a blend of fact and fiction, kind of, a, kind of a hybrid work. So when you find these writers that are mostly unknown, but really resonate with you, uh, it's just, it's the best that reading can be. It's like the best kind of reading, I think. Well, of all the, uh, you know, books that you keep returning to, or maybe books that have surprised you, do you think there's particular book or books that everyone should read? Yes, I'm just going to be uh, definitive on this and say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, and the first, well, the main writer who who rises to mind immediately for me is Annie Dillard. Mm. I feel like reading anything by Annie Dillard is a must for any. Um, serious reader or any reader, any person who loves reading, who loves seeing what a writer can be capable of, how a writer can surprise you on the page constantly and do that kind of by surprising themselves. That's the thing about Dillard is I just sense that at every stage of her writing process, she's surprising herself. Mm -hmm. Um, And her work has that defamiliarizing quality where she takes these quotidian things and makes them miraculous. Uh, through her treatment, but also just through her perception, her her 
like bringing her consciousness to bear on those everyday experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, so her book, An American Childhood, her memoir, is one of my all-time favorite books. It's like nothing I've ever read. It's like nothing I ever will read, I'm sure. Um, yeah. And I return to it all the time. Um, so Annie Dillard is a must. And then um, just to give two more, I think Virginia Woolf, um, her book, The Waves, uh, is another book that maybe anyone anyone and everyone should read because it it teaches what a novel can be, I guess. It teaches um, how wide open the novel form is, uh, even though it was a book written in the, I think in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so extremely experimental today, but never less than vital, never less than relevant. Um, you'll always find something in it, uh, even if you're kind of generally alienated by experimental works. Uh, it just has so many beautiful um, nuggets in it uh, to take with you, carry with you, live with, think about. I would say too, if if there were one short story that everyone should read, um, that story is Sonny's Blues, James Baldwin, Sonny's Blues. Mm. Another story I've been teaching recently, and um, I think that story is just kind of a miracle. <laughs> mm. uh, and its emergence into the world uh, in 1957 in the Partisan Review. It's just, a, it's a beautiful story that, uh, that that piece exists in the world. Mm-hmm. I like it. We got a syllabus, Aaron. We got a list, <laughs> like a good teacher. Yeah. I came prepared, yeah. Different <laughs> forms. We got a short story. We got poetry. It's very much say, appeals to my organizational side. <laughs> oh, excellent. I have to say, I studied up. I, uh, you know, I've, I've been listening to your podcast, uh, but I went back and listened to a few of the interviews and took note of the questions this time, thinking uh, <laughs> I need to, I need to prepare because, you know, I'm a note taker generally. So, yes. mm-hmm. I like that. Well, <laughs> at the end of the episodes, we usually talk about our current pop culture obsessions. Is there something that you are currently obsessed with? It's wide have- open. So. Yeah, um, I'm a little bit pop culture ignorant in some ways, but having a kiddo helps. Um, there's just more, there are more screens on generally, so I might happen <laughs> to see something, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. So I have a few podcasts Ooh. I might mention in addition to Broads and Books, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Aww, thank uh, you. <laughs> And then there's, well, let me start with the podcast. There's a, there's a movie podcast I really love called The Cinephiles. Hmm. Uh, I've heard of this. Yeah. Have you? Oh, great. Yeah. Uh, it's C-I-N-E, like cinema, cinephiles. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just these two movie aficionados talking about a single movie each week. And it, these are like hour long, sometimes two hours, sometimes four hour long conversations. Yeah where they break down a great film like scene by scene and they just talk about their experience of the film scene by scene. It's fantastic. Wow. Yeah. And they, they only do films that um, came out more than 10 years ago okay. in order to kind of, they've passed that like test that they've lasted that long. Mm-hmm. Um, but I highly recommend that podcast. Um, also this summer I watched on Netflix, the series love on the spectrum. Mm which was so moving and so involving, so heartbreaking, you know, on all levels. 
What was touching, that one about? I think I'm getting it confused with something else. Uh, it's it's people on the autism spectrum um, making their way into the dating life. Oh, uh, and okay. it's I think it's all people in Australia, all the the main characters, so to speak. It's a documentary. So all the main characters, so to speak, in this are just the most beautiful, endearing people. And you you just want the best for them. And they're so inspiring. It's just a really fantastic series. I think there's only one installment of it so far, like one season. I don't know if it's going to continue, but I can't recommend that highly enough. Awesome. Well, before, you know, before we go, um, this is a new one, Mark, this wasn't in pre, Uh since since you're a publisher, small press, sell us on a small press. What does a small press give us? What does indie presses give us that maybe others don't? Oh, wow. Oh I think goodness. a lot of our listeners read across, like we read big books, we read small books, and we're always recommending both. But, and I know the value of a small press, but what, what do you think? <laughs> My vision behind Atelier 26, and I think this is consistent with a lot of the small presses I really admire, is it's, a, it's about bringing to light, bringing to readers' consciousnesses, those books that um, are increasingly commercialized publishing industry doesn't want to take a chance on, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, either because they have sort of an unor- unorthodox approach, like formally, or the subject matter is scary in some way to the publisher or something like that. There's a handful of just great presses I could mention. Mm-hmm. Um, $2 Radio is fantastic, of course. I'm sure you're familiar with some of their titles. Mm-hmm. Um, Melville House mm-hmm. uh, in Brooklyn and London, they're a fantastic press. They do a lot of really interesting nonfiction books too. Um, one of my favorite recent, semi-recent nonfiction books was published by Melville House, a book called 1917. Uh, and it's like this panorama of the year before, oh no, sorry, it's 1913. It's a panorama of the year before the outbreak of World War I yeah. in Europe. Um, we have a really wonderful small press here in Portland um, called Forest Avenue Press. And they're constantly putting out um, beautiful new books, beautifully designed too. That's another consistency um, among great small presses. They pay a lot of attention to the appearance of the physical book on, in the cover and in the page design. Uh, but Forest Avenue Press is also doing really interesting sort of um, genre straddling books. Uh, delving into a little bit of sci-fi and fantasy in addition to their literary titles. So I'd highly recommend checking out their catalog. That's a few off the the bat. Any curveballs you have for Mark, Aaron, or was, you know, was that good? No, I'm going to let you hold the only curveball. Yeah. (laughs) That was a good one though. (laughs) Well, Mark, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for, Yeah. yeah. Thank you for all your books. This was an awesome. Thank you for inviting me. It is an honor. Absolutely. And I've really loved listening to the podcast and I can't wait to continue. Oh, Aaron. Yes. Like we said, what a he dream. has a way of talking about books. He does. And about writing, about creativity. Yeah. About all the things. Mm-hmm. I like that, you know, he was talking about um, the way that we teach books in high school 
and you remarked upon this mm-hmm. while we were talking about it that it's such a way to kill reading yeah and he put it in such a great way we hadn't thought about it like that where it's like a treasure hunt for symbolism yes. and if you don't want to participate in the treasure hunt well then you're kind of screwed because yeah. then reading sucks and it also is a way to instill doubt, right? Yes. Like if you didn't get that from it, if you related to something else, then you must not be able to understand it or you're not intellectual enough to exactly. understand it. That's a big part. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you're not smart enough to get this. Yes. So you should just stop reading. And that took me a long time. We've talked about that on the yeah. podcast. Like it took me well into adulthood to say, no, you know what? It's not about that. I don't like this. Mm-hmm. It's not that I'm not smart enough to get it. Yeah. I just don't like it. It's true that the... the the way that it's taught often doesn't allow for like individual interpretations or for bringing your own individual experiences to the story and getting that out of it. Absolutely. Yeah. I just, the way he put it, it was like verbalized a lot of what we've talked about before, but in a way that, yeah, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, along with that, I loved when he was talking about his young life and discovering books that he felt like were written for him. I think a lot of avid readers have that experience where you're like, Oh, this is and it's all different for all of us Mm -hmm. you know it means something different we all embrace books differently but that feeling it is and when even now every once in a while you get a book where you're just like okay maybe other people are reading this but no this is for me yes like i this is my experience it's like the benefit of chasing a high with drugs except you can get it back again (laughs) you can have it again (laughs) so you're not always chasing that first high chasing the first high you get to have multiple highs oh that's a good way to describe it. We should go to schools and describe reading this way. Listen. It's like a good... It's like a good drug high. It's a good drug high. Remember what Nancy Reagan said? Just say said? no. Not to reading, though. You can have that high. You can have that high. That's what we should just say to kids. Is, Do you remember when Nancy Reagan did... Because, yeah, they They'd will. be like, who? Yeah. What? Who's that? Yeah. What? Actually, what it reminded me of just now was that one sketch that they always did on SNL with Will Ferrell playing the piano. And sometimes yes. I think it was, was it Anna Gasteyer or Molly Shannon? Yeah. Played the, oh my God. Yes. The teachers mm-hmm. that did the weird. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. We did the weird, like, no, say no to drugs assemblies. Yes. And they do like new songs. Like they were hip. <laughs> that would be Very, us. very hip. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's us for sure. I liked too that, you know, we've talked to a lot of authors about how the pandemic has changed their reading and mm-hmm. We know that it's affected us in many ways. Um, it's affected other people that we've talked to in many ways. And for him, his uh, his experience has been like, oh, I want to read some poetry. I didn't have that experience. But no. it, it's interesting to hear that and to yeah. hear that like maybe somehow the way the pandemic has scrambled his brain, poetry sounds like a good solve for that. Which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I liked that. And I liked talking about the other side. We talked a lot about how hard it was to read, but we didn't talk a lot about what drew us out of it so that was interesting to hear someone else for sure i also really liked the part where he talked about following breadcrumbs from one book to another as a Mm -hmm. way to get book recommendations because that's happened to me a few times yeah and that feels so fun like i found this book because i read this book and it feels almost like a little secret or something that you unlocked which lends itself to that individual feeling again which is really cool yes yeah uh, I loved his stories about his first few readings, like on his first book tour yes. and the the kids just wandering in for extra credit. Yeah. Which, hey, that's great. But right. then you're going to sell this book I gave away to you? Yeah. Like Mark was very nice about it. In my head, I would have been like, what? Yeah. Just give it just back to me then. Smacked that book out of their hands. <laughs> wow. You don't deserve what's in this book. You don't deserve this giveaway. Yeah. You're going to sell it? You're going to make money off Me? me? Ugh. Off me. 
How dare you get on my How back after I've written dare this you. book? Yes. <laughs> but yes, he was very gracious about it, which yeah, he is about everything, which yeah, is wonderful. Yeah. But uh, I also like that he continued what we love, the small mm-hmm. press love, mm-hmm. and was sharing a few of his favorites. Mm-hmm. That was awesome. Yeah. It's one of my favorite things to do. It is just yeah. to hear about like, you know, uh, one or two of them that he had mentioned I'd heard of and then another one I hadn't. So yeah. it's always fun to discover like all these cool things that presses are doing. Very. Yeah, yeah. I loved that. Uh, so here's a reminder. You can find Mark's books as well as read about Atelier 26 books and listen to In the Atelier. All of the links are in the show notes. And, you know, Aaron's not jealous at all. It's fine if you want to listen to In the Atelier. You should. You should. You should. You should. I'm saying that you should. Yes. I'm not worried that you're not going to come back to us. You're going to enjoy both. For, exactly. There's yeah. room for both. There's room for everyone. Yes. In the book world. And room. if you're in any sort of, if you're a writer, if you're any creative yeah. in any way, it's a really interesting, nice 10 to 15 minutes every week. It is very and cool. Yeah. yeah. It really makes you feel like, oh, I'm part of this larger... And if you need a good bridge to get there, you, mm-hmm. you've got this episode to get you to Emma Allen Cunningham, but you also have an episode of, in the Atelier. So that'd be another good bridge for our listeners. Yeah. Get I you over that, that island. I recorded that in the height of my feral cat season where oh, there were just, did. yeah, where there were just cats running amok on That's my porch right. and having sex and having fights all over my, my lawn. I and remember my patio. that. Yeah. yeah. So I was in a headspace. You were in a headspace. And you'll get to experience that. I think it's worth it. <laughs> it was pre-Ziggy. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. pre-Ziggy. Oh. Yeah. Oh, mm. those were the days. Those were the <laughs> There days. weren't little piles of puke with rubber bands in them. So yeah. that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something mm-hmm. to remember. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we'll be back next Wednesday with our regular weekly themed episodes. In the meantime, happy reading. up again same night another dream before trying this recording thing i didn't remember much of anything of these dreams i didn't remember much from any of the women and one night of doing this and it's broken things open the dreams are they're in me and they're they're coming out of me and to me i am not broken i am the most whole most real their despair. I cause their despair. I wait for the word. I wait for the word. Witch. 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 Look at the mad woman in her cage. She was a woman with holes inside her. That was the heaviest factor. The final evidence. The heart of the issue. Somehow, you understand this. You. You. You hear me. Wherever you are, whatever this is, you... This isn't a dream journal anymore. It's not. That's just, it's just fact. <laughs> because now this is, this is some sort of record. What are these dreams? Maybe there's a better question. Who are these women? Weird Woman is a Broads and Books production. All nine episodes are available January 10th. 
Listen and subscribe to Weird Woman on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite podcast platform. That's W-Y-R-D, Woman, wherever you listen to podcasts.